Hey, I'm Mel. And I'm Andres, and you're listening to Mixtape, your favorite Afro-Latin podcast. What she said. The Mixtape Podcast takes an anti-racist approach to censor the contributions of Black people and culture across the Latin American diaspora through dance and music. Follow us on Instagram at mixtape.podcast and click our link tree in the bio to learn more. Today's track title is inspired by the song Yo Me Llamo Cumbia, My Name is Cumbia by composer Mario Gareña and interpreted by Toto La Mompocina. Today, we're listening to Fuego de Cumbia, Cumbia Fire, by Cumbia Group Los Gaiteros de San Jacinto. Multiple sources place the foundation of Los Gaiteros by musician Miguel Toño Fernández between the 1940s and the 1950s, so they have been around for more than half a century. Their name, Los Gaiteros de San Jacinto, translates to the Gaita Flute Players of San Jacinto Town, and makes reference to the two Gaita flutes, male and female, which are part of the instruments they include in their cumbia ensemble. The first national and international tours that Los Gaiteros undertook happened under the representation of Afro-Colombian researcher, writer, and folklorist Manuel Zapata Olivella. Together with Afro-Colombian dancer, choreographer, researcher, and folklorist Delia Zapata Olivella, his sister. We'll be hearing more about her today. Today's song, Fuego de Cumbia, is part of the album Un Fuego de Sangre Pura, which Los Gaiteros translate to Fire in the Blood, and which won them a Latin Grammy Award for Best Folkloric Album in 2007. In Fuego de Cumbia, Los Gaiteros sing about the main ethnic mixture that underpins Cumbia, the mixture of Amerindian and African cultures. Los Gaiteros sing, Se encienden noches oscuras, con un holgorio que encanta, los repiques de tambores, la raza negra levanta, y el indio pasivamente con su melódica gaita, interrumpen el silencio cuando una fogata baila, y yo siento por mis venas un fuego que no se apaga. Dark nights light up with a revelry that enchants, the sounds of the drums, the black race raises up. And the Amerindian, calmly, with their melodic gaita. They interrupt the silence when the bonfire dances. And I feel through my veins a fire that cannot be put out. Los gaiteros continue. Es el fuego de mi cumbia. Es el fuego de mi raza. Un fuego de sangre pura que con lamento se canta. It's the fire of my cumbia. It's the fire of my race, a fire in the blood that is sung with sorrow. In its music and in its lyrics, 
Fuego de Cumbia beautifully displays the intimate connection and mixture that exists between Amerindian and African cultures which gave us cumbia and the ethnic composition of a sizable part of the Caribbean and Pacific populations in Colombia. If you're curious about Fuego de Cumbia or about Los Gaiteros de San Jacinto, check our sources for this episode. Welcome to track number 7 of our second season, Yo Me Llamo Cumbia. My name is Cumbia. This is Mixtape. Welcome back to the Mixtape Podcast, and thank you for joining us on the first episode of 2022. We're diving right back into our rhythm season. If you're a regular listener, we are so happy to have you back with us. And if you're listening for the first time, you should know that in this season, we explore different Afro-Latin and African rhythms we encounter while social dancing. In one episode, we discuss the rhythm, and in the subsequent Were You Listening episode, we feature a song with the associated rhythm. That's right. We discuss the history of the rhythm as well as the dance, the movement associated with it, and we also discuss how we can continue to center and recognize its black roots. Our season so far has consisted of Afro-Latin rhythms including samba, the complex of Afro-Cuban rhythms, the blend of rhythms known as salsa as well as bachata and merengue. In our last episode, we also dug into the African rhythm of kizomba. For this episode, we are back in Latin America. In my dear beautiful motherland, Colombia, because the rhythm we are talking about today is cumbia. cumbia. All right, I feel like we've started every episode except salsa with the story of my lack of knowledge or affinity to a rhythm, but... This is why we're here, isn't it? To learn and experience the culture, music, and dance of these rhythms, and of course, the Black contributions. I give full credit to Andres for pitching this episode. When you mentioned you wanted to create an episode for Cumbia, I was very confused. As a Puerto Rican and a 90s kid from New York, when I think Cumbia, I think Selena Quintanilla. Above and beyond that, I think Mexico, and I most definitely don't think black. What a terrible tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) Yours is really not an uncommon misconception, since cumbia has expanded so much in Latin America, in particular in Mexico. And of course, the largest, by far, Latino and Latin American immigrant population in the U.S. is Mexican or of Mexican descent. All of the cumbia you hear in the U.S. is indeed Mexican. I think for anyone that enjoys this rhythm, in any of its many, many forms, it's very important to learn and recognize its roots. Even in Colombia, we're sometimes not as aware as we should be of where this rhythm comes from. So it's very important that we learn how the rhythm started, its black roots, and its indigenous roots as well. And I'm thankful that today we have an opportunity to share how the rhythm came to be in the Caribbean coast of Colombia and how it expanded throughout Latin America. I think many of our listeners from the United States may be coming to this with the same assumptions as I did. So we intentionally leaned into my shallow understanding of the rhythm to make this process of learning easy for us all. Thankfully, our guest on this episode 
and you too, just a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Extended grace with me in my learning. Excuse me. And we're willing to share this rhythm and culture. Oh, for sure. This episode has several incredible guests that were gracious to share their knowledge on the culture, music, and dance of cumbia and its associated matrix rhythm of Bujarangue, which we will explore throughout the episode. To get started, we spoke with Hector Fernandez, who is a professor in the Department of World Languages and Cultures at Georgia State University. Hector is also the author of Cumbia, Scenes of a Latin American Music Genre, a book we relied on to prepare for this episode. We asked Hector, what is cumbia, what are its origins, and what does cumbia mean? All right, um, I'll start with a caveat. There's a huge controversy in scholars that do research on cumbia. They're always going left and right in terms of the origin. There are multiple theories. Generally, the controversy seems to point to the fact whether cumbia was born to the western side of the Magdalena River or to the eastern side of the Magdalena River. If you, if you go into the history books, you will find evidence of both. You will find evidence of, of people describing choreographies or instruments that nowadays are associated with cumbia um, to the east of the Magdalena and what we call the Department of Magdalena. Um, and that wouldn't surprise me because to this day, one of the healthiest populations of Amerindian descent is around the Sierra Nevada. On the other hand, to the western side of the Magdalena, you have the most important port on the Colombian Caribbean, historically, uh, Cartagena de Indias. Cartagena de Indias was a slave port. So whether the, the, the elite of Cartagena wishes to acknowledge it or not, a sizable percentage of the population has African bloods in its veins. Even when you speak of the Caribbean coast, you can divide in, in certain portions of the Caribbean coast. So, so there could be a tension between, between scholars trying to suggest that Cumbia got started in one part of the Caribbean and Cumbia got started on, in another part of the Caribbean. When, when people explore documents, it's, it's only sensible that if you have a large city that you find documents associated to people uh, living in, in those cities. It doesn't mean that Cumbia was born in the city. It means that there were more po there was a bigger population and therefore the probability that, that uh, a form of Cumbia was documented by somebody was higher. As for the word, there are many theories. I tend to subscribe to one that identifies, that relates the word Cumbia to the word Cumbe, which according to what I've read, means to dance um, in, in an African tongue. We also interviewed my dear, dear friend, Carmen Dance, for this episode. Carmen is a retired associate professor from the Department of Radiology at Washington University School of Medicine and the founder and director of folkloric dance company Grupo Atlantico, which has been around for more than 25 years, as well as the more recent seniors dance company Dancing Damsels. Carmen is a very special guest for me, because I was part of her folkloric dance company for five years while I was doing my PhD. Dancing with Grupo Atlantico really helped me to ground myself and to reach back to my cultural roots. I'm incredibly thankful for everything this brilliant and extremely kind person did for me. Carmen, or Carmencita as I call her, 
added to the discussion of the origins of cumbia by describing its triethnic composition. So cumbia is our national dance, and, and it is a triethnic dance, meaning that three cultural roots are blended into the makeup of the dance. The uh, African slaves that came here by via Spanish conquest, and the indigenous population that was already part of our heritage and the Spain uh, tradition. So knowing that cumbia has such a blended composition, we wanted to know which influence is stronger on cumbia, Black African, Indigenous, White European, I have always identified cumbia as a cultural practice strongly rooted uh, in African forms. That said, in the current generation, especially from the interior of the country, the traditional controversy was, please don't erase the Amerindian legacy. And it's there. It's blatant. I mean, the flauta, the millo, eh, the gaita. I mean, that's sheer evidence of, of the cultural tradition of Amerindians. Other things point to uh, African influence and other elements point to the Spanish influence. So generally speaking, I, I would say it's a fairly balanced uh, mix of the three great cultural traditions of the Americas. And that's what makes it successful. That, what, that makes it very appealing, regardless uh, of nat national boundaries, because when, wherever it travels, it has a bit that allows people of whatever descent to identify with cumbia as a cultural practice. As I tell you, uh, to me, it, I think mainly African, to many people, what they defend is the Amerindian descent. I don't deny the Amerindian descent. Uh, I don't deny the Spanish descent. Um, I just emphasize the African descent basically because of issues of race in Colombian and American society. The history of, of cumbia, if it shows anything, it's that it has gone through processes of widening so that it's accepted by certain uh, social classes. Hector began to allude to the widening of cumbia despite its strong African and Amerindian influences. So we asked him to say more about Cumbia's journey in Colombia, where it eventually became the national rhythm and across Latin America. Cumbia is a folkloric form, and it was already formed as early as the late 18th century. It's well documented through most of the 19th century, historically, and at the beginning of the 20th century, it's practiced all over the, the Caribbean coast. What happens is in the early 20th century, uh, technology starts arriving to Colombia. And one of the first technologies to arrive to Colombia was radio. The first radio station in Colombia uh, was in Barranquilla. Back then, the two largest cities of the country were Bogota and Barranquilla. Medellin and Cali had not grown yet. The, the growth of Medellin and Cali comes later, and it's the result of uh, improved technology. The fact that it's possible to fly, 
and and the fact that the the central government, the national government, decided to invest heavily, for example, in Cali. But back in the day when when technology started arriving, when Avianca was born, Avianca was born in Barranquilla, radio arrives in Barranquilla. The radio stations, they needed to build programming. So each radio station had a band. And what those bands started doing, they would take the music from the countryside and they would develop urban arrangements. That is, um, more sophisticated or urban-sounding versions of uh, folkloric popular tunes. And many of those folkloric popular tunes were cumbias. So, so we have that start with those, with those orchestras. It's important to consider the influence of the United States of America. What was happening in the United States of America at that point? Jazz ruled. Swing ruled. And, and we had the big bands. So what, through a process that took perhaps 20, 30 years, what started happening was people, musicians, started dressing cumbia in coattails. They, they developed big bands. Uh, with well-attired individuals, uh, with um, fancy arrangements. They added uh, lots of horns. Um, they, they expanded the musical repertoire um, of, of cumbia. And to the extent that they, they took the American package, the aesthetics of, of American swing, and adapted it, to, to uh, the orchestras that work for the radio stations, gradually, those orchestras became popular in other parts of Colombia. The two main cities where, where this took place was one, Medellin. Medellin was beginning to gain a lot of economic power because of coffee. And, and there's something very important that happened, is that Discos Fuentes, a major recording label of dance music, of what we call tropical music, uh, was in Cartagena. And at some point, because the market conditions were better, because there was more money, better funds, there was, uh, there was a possibility of greater coverage of a national market. Uh, the owner of Discos Fuentes moved the recording studio to Medellin. And Medellin gra- gradually consolidated its position as the center of the Colombian recording industry. Something similar started happening in Bogota, but in Bogota is just the, the natural inertia of being the capital. Many of these orchestras and musicians were hired to play at, at hotels. That's Each hotel needed to have uh, its own band, right? So the hotels would, would uh, sign this, this band's with a contract, and they would hire them for a, a lengthy period of time. And at the same time, some of the, the most popular band leaders, um, Pacho Galán, Lucho Bermúdez, they started making a reputation elsewhere. Bermúdez came from a little town um, called Carmen de Bolívar in, in uh, Bolívar. 
But Bermudez had a very uh, savvy spirit as a businessman with his band, and he would travel. Bermudez was the first one to travel back in the day to Argentina. Back in the day, uh, Mexico City and Buenos Aires were the two main recording capitals for Spanish-speaking tunes uh, throughout Latin America. So Bermudez went uh, to Buenos Aires, and they had great orchestras. They implemented great arrangements. They worked with him. He was there for quite a while recording stylized versions of Colombian tunes. Uh, versions ideal for, for the Argentine taste. Bermudez starts moving around. I mean, and there are other musicians um, that, that start traveling a lot. And Discos Fuentes has a lot to do with it. Discos Fuentes, when it, when it lands in Medellin, uh, because of the greater market, they realize they have the potential to form groups um, and, and name the groups, and through the groups, spread the music. Um, so the groups organized by Discos Fuentes, uh, at least two of them, uh, land in Mexico and Mexico city was the great, uh, Latin America is the great Latin American capital. And, uh, and the, the music spreads like fire in, in, in Mexico. And here comes Venezuela, the richest country in South America, period. Well, in Venezuela, because they had so much money, they had imported musicians from other latitudes. And being that they had so much money, they had more resources and they had better instrumentation, more modern equipment. And they start influencing the sound of cumbia. And the people in Medellin are influenced by that. And they start tweaking cumbia uh, to attain something that to this day it's called chucuchucu. And chucuchucu is the type of cumbia that most people, when they think of cumbia, that's what they have in mind. Because that's the cumbia that was heavily exported left and right all over Ecuador, Peru, Mexico, around Central America, obviously into Argentina, moving all around. And that that's starts popularizing. Parallel to that development, what we have is how cumbia uh, develops inside Colombia. In Colombia, there have been uh, the elites of the capital city and uh, the periphery. The elites of the capital city like to think of themselves as white or whiter. <laughs> um, they like to think of themselves as 
at worst, we're mestizos. <laughs> uh, we definitely don't have African descent. So for the music to percolate, to permeate the cultural fabric of, of the capital city, musicians like Bermudez or Galan had to heighten the degree of content in their production that, um, that accentuated European descent musically. And that wasn't hard because they had, they had embraced the forms of swing, right, of jazz. So um, they developed highly stylized arrangements. Bermudez, when, when TV started in Colombia, Bermudez was actually, uh, with his band, he was invited to play uh, during the inaugural uh, broadcast of Colombian television. That implied that the center of the country, Bogota, the capital, was officially sanctioning cumbia as uh, an accepted form of Colombian identity. That said, what happens in the late 70s, uh, 80s, and early 90s is quite, quite interesting. I witnessed the process of, uh, of, of another form, another musical form, sharing space or, or gaining space together with cumbia, which is vallenato. In the 90s, we have a gentleman called Carlos Vives. And Carlos Vives comes from an upper middle class background from Santa Marta. And, and he was a soap opera star. But he has enormous charisma. And he discovers, he implements a, a very worthy um, cultural project, which is he, he urbanizes even further Vallenato. Um, and on top of that, when, he, when he's successful with Vallenato, he underscores the, the fact that behind Vallenato, behind most celebrated uh, contemporary forms of Colombian uh, urban slash country music, is cumbia. He literally would say, La cumbia es la madre de todos. So, and, and later on, he starts as vallenato, but then he diversifies and he starts recording cumbia. He starts recording other genres of African descent in Colombia. What I would like to point out with respect to Vives, which did wonders for Colombia because it, 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 it sort of forced a lot of people that didn't want to accept musical forms of African descent or Amerindian descent, and they finally embraced them. I'm talking about the, the middle classes or the upper middle classes of, of many places in the interior of the country. Today's generation has no problem with that. Today's generation communes with that. But back in the day, that was not exactly the case. I remember when I was in Bogota, people would dance cumbia. They would dance chukuchuku, but many people didn't yet danced by Yenato. The problematic side to this all is that when Lucho Bermudez uh, modifies or stylizes cumbia so that it gains popularity in the interior of the country, he widens it. When Carlos Vives adds a sort of 
rock flair, urbanized country forms so that they gain additional popularity in the interior of the country, nationally, he widens them even more. So we're talking about two processes of widening, of musical widening, taking place in, in the country. In the end, it's all good, because in the end, what happens is um, the music gained traction um, and, and in attain, it attained national status. So in the end, it's a matter of, as always, a form of working class origin gradually being accepted first by the middle class and then by the upper class. Our next guest, Rosita Lozano, was for many years a prominent dancer in the ensembles of Dotola Mampocina and of renowned Afro-Colombian ethnographer, researcher, choreographer, and folklorist Delia Zapata Oliveira. These days, she's a cultural manager and director of the foundation Rosa Agustina Medina Perez. Bringing Rosita on board was fundamental because in the construction of this episode, we wanted to lean heavily into my limited understanding of the cumbia rhythm. So we were sure to ask her, for someone who doesn't know much about cumbia, how would you describe the movement associated with the dance? Rosita provided a comprehensive answer for us. She's incredibly experienced and knowledgeable. During the interview, her and her son Santiago even showed us several videos so that we could see the differences in the dances. You can find those links on our website. The English translation of her discussion is offered here by our previous guest, Lauren Wilmore. La cumbia en Colombia también varía. Cumbia dancing in Colombia varies depending on what region it is interpreted in. For instance, in Cartagena, cumbia has a lot more Afro movement, in the sense that when the woman dances the movement in the hips, although still having subtle, slow cadence, it is a little bit more voluptuous than in other places, such as in the Banco Magdalena. In Cartagena, you still have that style that's a little bit more free, in a sense, happier, and with faster movement and more fluidity in the movement over the floor than in other regions. For instance, let's talk about the man, who is the one that represents the African elements the most. Because women couldn't really let loose and move in whichever way they wanted. During that time in Colombia, they had to keep a decent attitude according to the standards of the time in which Colombia was born. It was more accepted for men to show themselves. Hence, men expressed themselves more in Cumbia, especially in Cartagena and the state of Atlantico. The man in Cumbia keeps his Afro movement. He can go to the floor, he can stand up, everything with grace. He enamors his partner without touching her. He crouches, he stands up, he looks at her, uses his hat to enamor her. He takes the hat off, he puts it on. He flirts more openly and more naughtily towards her. 
Women remain imposing with their elegance and grandeur. Their body movement is different. Their torso, more than the lower body, moves differently. The upper body posture remains erect, following the movement of the hips, which do move with a little more cadence. But the rest of the body remains calm and still. With one hand, she holds a candle, and with the other, she handles the skirt. In addition, the clothing that women wear in Cumbia, according to historians and researchers, goes back to the time in which Cumbia was created, when women had to wear clothing following the standards from Spain, the Spanish heritage. That's why the clothing of women in traditional Colombian cumbia is covered from neck to toes with long-sleeved blouses and long skirts, because it was a reproduction of Spanish clothing. That is why women in Colombia, with the temperature being as high as it is here, are dressed this way to dance. Can you imagine the heat? That clothing was more than anything a way to cover the bodies of black and indigenous women who were the ones interpreting cumbia. Now, if we talk about the cumbia that is danced in the Banco Magdalena or in regions with more indigenous influence, such as the Pocaboy region, that cumbia is more still, and it's more about how the feet move as the dancers advance over the floor than it is about body movement. The movement of the body is almost imperceptible. It's very simple. So you don't see that voluptuosity that you see in Cumbia, in the Atlantic coast, in Barranquilla or Cartagena, in this part of the Caribbean. I would also say that the cumbia from the Banco Magdalena is more of a ballroom dance. It's more elitist, even for the Banco Magdalena society. For instance, in cumbia from Cartagena or in the state of Atlantico, men have one of their heels always raised off the floor, in media punta as we call it. They keep the heel off the floor and they drag it during the entire dance. In the cumbia from Banco Magdalena, this movement is imperceptible. The feet go flat on the floor, also dragging, but always flat on the floor. The man also dances very still. The movements he makes while trying to enamor his partner are very slow, without the grace of the black man who enamors her and looks at her and uses stronger movements. Those are the two main different ways that we have in this region for men to dance cumbia. In one of them, the man is very African in his movement, and the other one, he's more indigenous in his movement. This past January, I was in Bogota, Colombia, doing work visa errands at the U.S. Embassy. You know the story, Mel. And I decided to walk a bit around Plaza de Bolívar, the main plaza in the city, right next to the Supreme Court, the Town Hall, and the Capitol. So I was walking in the blocks around it, and I literally bumped into this little street map that told me that two or three blocks away, I would find the house of Delia Zapata Olivella, which is called El Palenque de Delia. Naturally, I walked there, and although I couldn't get in, I did take a picture of it. 
Our next guest is the pinnacle of that series of fortunate events that started with us reading Delia's work. As we were looking for knowledgeable guests, we contacted El Palenque de Delia and they put us in contact with our next guest, Edelmira Maza Zapata. She's a choreographer, teacher, visual artist, director general of El Palenque de Delia and the daughter of Delia Zapata Livela. Yeah, the Delia Zapata Livela. We took advantage of Edelmira's knowledge to ask her about the origins of the dance of cumbia. In our academic readings, which included Delia's work, we found a 2013 article by researcher Leonardo D'Amico in which he mentions one of the hypotheses, that the dance derives from, I quote, a ritual dance of initiation from Central America, end quote. On the other hand, Leonardo himself describes cumbia dance as, I quote, a dance similar to the Spanish court dances characterized by a love duel in which the movements simulate a game of repulsion and attraction between two dancers, end quote. We asked Elmira what was her opinion about this hypothesis. Elmira's responses are presented in English in the voice of Jordana Laina, another former guest of the podcast. Well, hypotheses, there's a lot now and the list just keeps growing. If you talk to Rosita, you know they have a project to save keep cumbia, and there's been some research on this regard. But if you go to the origins of cumbia, I would insist that cumbia is a dance both mestizo and Colombian. And it's hard to say whether it was this reason or that reason why it emerged. If you look at the anecdotes and also the research by young scholars, the number of stories keeps growing. However, undoubtedly, all these dances that derived from fertility and fecundity dances have to do with the fight for survival. They have to do with sexuality indisputably because it's to preserve life. Delia also studied a lot of the choreographic form in which cumbias developed, which has to do with those astral movements in which the planets orbit around a central axis, which is the sun. In this case, the orbit is around the music which is what unites the dancers and those who participate in this great cosmic movement to preserve life. And we also know that, and this may not be as well known, but many references of those who chronicled about the Amerindian man before the arrival of the Europeans is that everything in his life was directed towards being thankful for the gift of life. And it's that thankfulness which was expressed through movement even 17th century Jesuit historian Fernandez de Piedraita emphasizes that the gods or creators of the universe were not only praised with words, but also with all parts of the body. In that sense, the physical and corporal culture of movement is part of our history, of our very lives. If you're in Colombia, you realize that here you dance for everything. And for everything, there's a party because that is the way in which the ancestors, the deities, and life itself were praised. The sense of community is expressed through movement. So I think that if you consider all the information that's out there about cumbia, it is possible that all these hypotheses are valid. But it is indisputable that cumbia has something in its interior, in its deepest core, that makes us, people from the Americas, to identify with it because there is something about the value of being Native American that is implicit there, and that also connects with the Neo-African, and that 
makes us have a sense of belonging with our land. So now I'm a little more familiar with some of the historical context around the expansion of cumbia and its actual origins. But then Andres dropped something called bullerengue on the table as a close relative of cumbia. And I'm still working on trying to pronounce it properly. How am I doing? Bullerengue. <laughs> so naturally we had to ask what is bullerengue, where does it come from, and what do people sing about? To answer this, we spoke with Nelda Piña an incredibly humble cantaora, a singer, a composer of bailes cantaos, some dances of the Colombian Caribbean, and lead singer of Nelda Piña y sus tambores. Nelda actually confessed that she was nervous to speak to us. Meanwhile, we were honored and nervous to speak to her. Can you believe that? By the end of our conversation, I decided I want to be her when I grow up. Here's what she had to say about Bujerengue, translated to English in my voice. Bullerengue is a mixture of music, of baile cantao, sung dance. It is sung dance from the Caribbean coast of Colombia. Bullerengue emerged with the slaves that arrived in Cartagena. They would make sounds with the alegre drum, which is the female drum, the llamador drum, and clapping. Women would wear long and ample skirts to celebrate the liberation from slavery. That is where Bullerengue is born, in Cartagena de Indias, when the slaves arrived. The songs are about the day-to-day -day happenings in our region. For instance, I draw inspiration from the things that happen in my hometown, in the country, in the world. What I see and what I hear guide me and I transform it into a Bullerengue song. There are memories, there are anecdotes, myths, and legends from our ancestors that our grandparents told us. For instance, stories about when there wasn't electricity, stories about the existence of witches. All of those stories you start mixing, one thing with the other, and you make it into a bullerengue. We followed up asking Nelda if there is a musical, dance, or cultural relationship between Bullerengue and Cumbia. Yes, there is a lot of commonalities because it is executed with the same instruments, such as alegre and llamador drums. Cumbia departs from Bullerengue and that there is an instrument that you do not find in Bullerengue, and that is the tambora or bombo drum, which gives the bass or low sound to cumbia. Bullerengue is alegre drum, llamador drum, clapping and voice, because it's a song dance. Cumbia, on the other hand, has alegre drum, llamador drum, and tambora drum, which gives the bass, that sound, boom. In cumbia, you find maracas, drums, and wind instruments that you don't find in bullerengue. 
For wind instruments, there is pito and there is gaita. Many musicians, such as the Gaiteros de San Jacinto, have also introduced clarinet. The clarinet is also common in cumbia. What is used depends on the region. For instance, in the Caribbean region, they use mijo flute and gaitas. Why did cumbia explode and bullerengue did not as much? With bullerengue, what happens is the following. First of all, in bullerengue, in baile cantao, what you have are cantaoras, not cantantes. When I was growing up, to the extent that I remember, high-class people looked down on cantaoras They saw them as vulgar women that were singing just to pass time. Those high-class people were ignoring that this is an ancestral rhythm. The rhythm precedes my time. It comes from the ancestors. There was never support because it wasn't considered as music appropriate to serve as representation. So they would see the cantaoras, the women, who would stay overnight in the circles of Buyerengue as commoners. So that's the reason why bullerengue didn't diffuse as much as cumbia, because it wasn't taken into account. It wasn't considered. No one thought that those little drums could also be good. Nowadays, there's a miscegenation. It's not only a music of black people, because you go to Bogota and you find bullerengue by whites. You see them playing drums. They come to the coast to learn how to play all the instruments people playing mijo flute, everything you can find in the interior of Colombia. Our next guest was Pure Luck. You remember we invited Rosita Lozano to talk to us, right? Well, the day of the interview, she showed up with her son, Santiago Andres Rojas Lozano, who is a connoisseur of the traditional music of the Colombian Caribbean. He was supposed to just help her with technical stuff, but we couldn't let that opportunity to speak with him pass. So we got Santiago to answer some questions too. On top of his knowledge of the musical traditions, which includes playing several traditional instruments, Santiago is a cultural manager and vice president of the Foundation Rosa Agustina Medina Perez. Given what we'd begun to learn from Nelda, we wanted to know more about Bujerenga musically. Santiago's contribution is presented in English in Andres's voice. From the point of view of music, we could say that the primary sources are Bullerengue and Son de Negro. As it pertains to Bullerengue, it's played with alegre drum, llamador drum, claps, sticks, seeds, and vocals, which are our natural instrument. That is how Bullerengue used to be played, and that is how it's still played. After, for cumbia, people started introducing the tambora drum or bombo, which you find in many countries, even in Europe. There's, for instance, the Andean tambora. 
Everyone from the US to Argentina has some version of tambora drum which they play with a stick. The drum that is played with the drummer's hand, the alegre drum, is the one that brings what's primitive, what's original, from what they were able to create here. The alegre drum is the basis of the Afro influence. So first, there was bullerengue, which only has those instruments I mentioned. Cumbia comes after, and it has alegre drum, llamador drum, maracas, tambora drum, and vocals. Then, wind instruments were added. Gaita, which is long flute, or pito atravesado, which is a transverse flute, or flauta de millo, or de carrizo, millo, or carrizo flutes, depending on the material with which they were made. Hence, bullerengue and cumbia are close, but cumbia was at a stage in which it was evolving and in which things were being added to it. But the connection comes from there. They have the same musical elements, the same basic instruments, but they have different rhythmic languages. The rhythmic bass of bullerengue is one thing, and the rhythmic bass of cumbia is another. Even though people use a series of repiques and golpes, ways of playing the drums that can bring them closer, the rhythmic basses are different. Now, you can also find bullerengue cumbia. But if it's a cumbia, it has to have tambora drum, but then bullerengue does not have a tambora, you maybe find cases in which they play the drums with a stick, but bullerengue does not have a tambora. So you won't hear a tambora repique in a bullerengue. But you will find it in a cumbia, because cumbia has tambora. So, they are close, but they are not the same thing. Edelmira also walked us through the evolution of the dance of cumbia from a choreographical perspective and included bullerengue. Both Santiago and Edelmira also briefly mentioned Matrix Rhythm, Son de Negro, which you can learn more about in our resources page on our website. It's like what happens with words, with research, and with ways of doing things, because as I mentioned earlier, there are modes that identify the people from the Americas. These modes get diluted as they get transferred, and they transform. One thing is to dance for a ritual, and a different one is to dance for a show. And the one that diffuses more, and that is more transferred, is the one for spectacle. So, the modes used for show and spectacle, which have become popularized nowadays, have little in common with the intrinsic rituality of the dance itself. The modes also change according to the idiosyncrasies of those who interpret them. And you can find many forms of expression. Bujerengue and Son de Negro are matrix rhythms in the Caribbean coast. The Bujerengue step is the one that the woman executes in Cumbia. My mother many years ago had a student that had a very interesting way of explaining the steps. He was explaining to a newbie how to dance cumbia, and he would say, Look, gringo, this is very easy. You step on the ground with the left foot, drag the right foot, 
and everything else is just gestures and teasing. <laughs> and it is in those gestures and teasing where you find the individual expression of the dancer. There are traditional dances that have very strict steps and forms that must be rigorously followed and that are executed identically by everyone and repeat constantly. However, in cumbia, you can see that even though there exists a rhythmic base in which you execute the steps, just like my mother's student said, step with the left, drag with the right, the expression and what you manifest as a dancer is what you're feeling. And that makes the dance have an important core component, which is improvisation. That improvisation goes together with the dancer's expression, and the expression depends on what you're feeling at that moment. You will never dance cumbia in the same way twice, never in your life, because every time you interpret it, you're in a different condition. The emotions are different, the space is different, and this is going to make you dance differently. This is a very, very important and specific characteristic of cumbia. Our guest, Hector, mentioned earlier that when people outside of Colombia hear cumbia, they are probably thinking of chucuchuku. I certainly know this for a fact. So we asked Rosita and Santiago if they were familiar with artists in Colombia and beyond who incorporate African elements explicitly in their cumbia music. You can thank me later for the listening options. Bueno, personalmente, We have some friends who are fighting the good fight in the U.S. For instance, Eduardo Martinez is there, who was one of Santiago's teachers. He's a percussionist in general, but he's always been an avid student of the Alegre drum. He has a group there called Eduardo Martinez y su palo cuero. He lives in L.A. and he's always had that stubbornness to fight for safekeeping the original sound and introducing it. With him, what happens is almost the opposite of what we were talking about before, because he always introduces the drum to more modern sounds. So he's always in that fight for the drum to transcend, to not let the drum vanish from compositions. Another person we know who is also there in the U.S. is Damien Bossio, who is also fighting to keep the original legacy. There's a great cantaora called Yaya Blanco, who is also a lawyer and works in other things such as the Afro fight in Latin America. She works on that in the US, but at the same time, she's trying to maintain the legacy of her musical traditions. There's also a guy called Chango Deli, who works in Europe. Also in Europe is Maestro Arnold Aguilar Salgado, who is palenquero and lives in Spain. He spent lots of time teaching Alegre drum and now is playing Vallenato, which is also another area of tradition. Of course, there's also Totola Mompocina, who traveled around the world and spent a lot of time in Europe. There's the daughter of Petrona Martinez and Petrona Martinez herself, of course, while she was active. There is also Maite Montero, among those people who take some of the traditional elements and introduce them in modern sounds. I think Toto is one of the only ones who maintain the original structure, but she even has musical arrangements with other instruments. 
There's also the Gaiteros de San Jacinto. They keep a general structure of how traditional music should be played. But there's not a whole lot of people keeping the original traditions. What you see is that the traditional sounds permeate. For instance, J Balvin has a song called Que Calor with gaita sounds that come from the song Curura, which is an old traditional song. And there's also Hugo Salcedo in Australia. He lives in Adelaide and teaches Colombian music. The objective of our podcast is to center the contributions of black people in music and culture from an anti-racist perspective. We asked Nelda, in her opinion, what are the contributions of black people in Cumbia and Bullerengue? Precisely, because we black people have that attitude. It's like a gift. We black people carry that in our blood. The sound of the drums, of the maracas, of the guacharacas, all of that contributes. Since the beginning, Black people have been the foundation of baile cantao and cumbia, because cumbia practically depends on baile cantao. The artesian handmade instruments that are used in both bullerengue and cumbia are made by the same men. All of that is made by Black people. Nowadays, not only black people play drums, people from Bogota also play drums. For instance, I'm very thankful for David Mesa, who is from Bogota and plays gaita and tambor. They come from their towns, from their cities to the Caribbean coast to learn how to play and execute. They go to Palenque, they go to the towns in the riverside of the Dique Canal, because in all of those towns, people know how to execute the rhythms. But there is a breeding ground, so much potential. And it makes me sad. It breaks my heart because the children learn empirically. They learn by themselves because there's no support for the kids to have a school and learn how to execute. On the other hand, those who have resources come, pay for their stay, pay for classes to learn drumming, Gaita, Emilio, all of it. And people without a lot of resources, we don't have those opportunities, which what happens to Nelda Piña. I don't have those economic resources to go to a given place. When they invite me, they give me the tickets because I tell you, I don't have the resources to pay for plane tickets to go abroad, to go there and to show what I know and what I love. We also asked Edelmira, for those people who listen to and dance cumbia in any of its forms in Latin America, how can these people explore and address more deeply the black roots of this rhythm? First of all, there is a lack of knowledge all over the Americas about the origin of cumbia, about its roots. 
It's like when something starts transforming and transforming, and what we know, it's just the latest version of it, but we don't know its origin. Now, I don't think it's necessarily only about finding the African roots of Cumbia, because Cumbia's essence is so intertwined between the two peoples, African and Amerindian, that it's very difficult to separate them. But we do need to work a lot ourselves to learn and to know. Perhaps not the very origin itself, but certainly some of our traditional and original forms, and to exhibit them more so that people can start knowing them, and so that that interpretation of cumbia can come from that knowledge. Knowing the origin is always very important. Knowing the origin gives us firm foundations to execute or to make anything that has to do with life itself, especially given the conditions in which humanity is currently living. Hence, one needs to know the history of one's ancestors and the ways in which they express themselves. And then, one might be able to catch a glimpse of the contributions to the dance expression of the source, primary cultures. It's also like a ritual legacy that we haven't deciphered. It's like we have a treasure hidden and kept safe there. We also can't ignore the work that can be done here in the United States to share knowledge of cumbia with the audiences that may not be familiar with its origins. Carmen Dentz shared about the incredible work she does through Grupo Atlantico. The, the dance lends to so much invitation for other cultures, as has been proved by the expansion of cumbia worldwide. It is, it is a dance and it's a rhythm and it's a, it's a way of moving that is accessible to everyone in the world. And, and the expansion of cumbia is actually um, telling you the same. It is, a, it is easy to, to blend with your own body movements. With cumbia, you know, you are one year old, you are dancing, you are a hundred year old, and you are still dancing. So, so that's one privilege that, that any bailador de cumbia, any cumbia dancer can testify. At my age, I'm still dancing cumbia with the passion and the uh, ability that I had when I was 10 years old. So it's, it's, it's one of those dances that naturally feed the human anatomy, I would say. It, 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 the ways that, that the, the movement of the hips, the movement of the hands, the head, is, is, is almost um, like declaring a poem. At this point, because of the great sponsorship that we have had, every one of these dancers had been trained without paying a single penny. Everyone comes to my house where I had the studio. I don't charge any money 
to teach distances. And we meet two, three times a month for two, three hours, depending whether we have a program or not, but, but it's totally free to the community. I tell, I tell my artists, uh, my dancers, musicians, that we are there to educate, to bring what we know to an audience that I assume knows nothing about what they are going to see. So it is important for us not just to dance and to move the hips and to uh, you know, do whatever is needed at that moment. It is so important for me as an educator, as well, maybe come from my scientific background. I, I, I couldn't conceive going to the lab without having all the tools that I needed to be able to do my job as a scientist. I approach the arts in the same way. One needs to get educated in what every part of the presentation is conveying as a message. So if the program is going to be half an hour or one hour or 10 minutes, or it doesn't matter the audience will live with some acquired knowledge that they didn't have before. And if their knowledge of what they have seen was different now from what they believe was before, then we are there. We open up for questions. We open up for discussions and for uh, evaluation. I love that in our conversation with Carmen, she not only shared what books people can read, which can be found in the references of this episode, but the way that she has invited people to learn about the rhythm and the culture through her practice of inviting people into her home and through setting up these mechanisms to allow people to grow personally, spiritually, and professionally by investing the time to teach people not just about how to move their bodies, but also how to really embrace a culture. The more we work on the rhythms episodes, we learn so much about how rhythms become monetized and sold and what Carmen does is quite the opposite. This invitation for people to be able to learn, even if it means that they understand something differently than they did when they came in, is so important. And I truly hope that we're cultivating the same space through this podcast. I'm honestly at a loss of words after all the conversations we've had for this episode. I cannot tell you how incredibly honored I feel to learn from all of these very kind and knowledgeable humans. It was such a pleasure and such a reencuentro with myself, such a grounding experience for me as an Afro-Colombian of Caribbean ancestry. I felt the cumbia fire burning my veins, and I also felt the bullerengue and the sondenegro fire, and the drums, of course, always calling, always. I agree. Everyone was so humble and passionate in their discussion of this rhythm. I feel fortunate to have met and learned from our guest, 
And I hope that as you all listen to this episode, you've expanded your view on this Colombian rhythm with strong Black and Indigenous roots. Say it louder for the ones in the back. Say it louder, say it proud. <laughs> Big thank you to our guests, Hector, Carmen, Nelda, Rosita, Santiago, and Elmira. You were all so thoughtful and we are grateful for the privilege we had to speak with you. We also want to give a big thank you to David Mesa, who does music management for Nelda Piñez Sus Tambores and who connected us with Nelda, and to Felipe Guerra, the subdirector of El Palenque de Delia, who helped us connect with Edelmira. Both David and Felipe were incredibly helpful and supportive. And we also want to thank Lauren Wilmore and Jordan Alina, both previous guests of the podcast, for helping us reading the English translations of Rosita and Edelmira. And we have hours and hours of audio from our interviews, so stick around for more of these conversations in upcoming episodes. We learned so much from this episode, and we hope that you did too. Thank you for listening. This is Mixtape. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To listen to the songs featured on the episode and songs featured in other episodes, check out the Season 2 playlist, which can be found at our website, tarheels.live slash podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at mixtape.podcast, as well as Twitter and YouTube, which are easily accessed through our website. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications for all our new episodes. Have any suggestions, questions, or comments? Email us at themixtapepodcast at gmail.com. You can also send audio clips of your reflections to the content to be featured on our episode. Thanks for listening. This is Mixtape. Oh,